the Lord, that uh, we would um, take the exhortation that's given to us to heart. So open up our ears spiritually, soften our hearts to receive your word. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated this morning. At this time, middle schoolers are going to be dismissed. They'll be going upstairs to the youth room. The rest of us, we're going to continue in our verse-by-verse study in the book of Hebrews. If you're new to Calvary, as I said, we go through the books of the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse, line upon line. So we've been in Hebrews. We covered the first five chapters. We'll start at chapter 6, verse 1 here this morning, if you'll turn there to the back of the New Testament. If you need a Bible, Jerry's in the back there. He has some Bibles in his hands. He'd love to give you one to read with us. We're going to cover verses 1 through 8 of chapter 6 of Hebrews. Again, you'll find it in the back of the New Testament. Very interesting, very difficult portion of Scripture, particularly as we get to verses 4 through 6, but we'll see what the Lord has for us. But keep in mind that as we've gone through this epistle thus far, that the writer, uh, inspired by the Spirit of God, is exhorting those, those initial readers who were the Hebrew believers in the first century to realize that Jesus is supreme and superior to anyone or anything, to any angel, to any prophet, to any high priest, to any religious system, and, and they are being reminded that it does not get any better than Jesus. Now, you may not have the magnificent temple that you're going to, that is that building standing in Jerusalem, and it was magnificent. It was one of the wonders of the world as far as buildings. The incense would rise and the smoke uh, would rise from the temple, uh, from the sacrifices. The priests were in their robes. There was the blowing of the trumpets. There was the, the Jews coming up for prayer. There was all this tradition, the festivals and all of this, and they would look back at that and and they would wonder, well, what about us? Because we're meeting in simple houses and small groups. We're not popular. We're not well-received. We're being persecuted. But here the writer is telling them that God has made a temple without hands. That is, as Peter says in his epistle, that we are living stones being put together in this holy habitation. And that temple that stood in Jerusalem would be destroyed a few years later after this epistle was written but God is still building that living temple that is the church even today as living stones are being put together, you and I. And so you have something uh, that is better, and it doesn't get any better than Jesus and what he has done for us. And the writer is telling them that there is the rest of Jesus that they can enter into, the rest that he completed the work for our salvation. And keep in mind that we've been told that, that Jesus, he's the captain, or that is the comp- completer of our salvation, chapter 2, verse 10. And then in chapter 4, for he who has entered that rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did his. In other words, the point that the writer was making here in this epistle is that just as God created uh, the heavens and the earth, Genesis chapter 2, but then he rested. And we know that we can rest in the finished work of the cross. He himself has ceased from that work. As Jesus cried out, it is finished. He did the work. He paid the price for our sins. He rose again from the grave, and now we put our faith and trust in him. It's no longer about duty, but it's about devotion. And then as we moved into chapter 4, we read about the importance of the word of God in our lives. 
for the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And so these discouraged Christians having the temptation and the tendency to go back to Judaism are being reminded of some very important things that you and I need to understand. That today, listen, it doesn't get any better than Jesus. And you believe in Him. And you put your faith and trust in Him. And you yield to Him. That He is our rest. To know the Word of God is what we're being exhorted in this portion with the exhortation that is given to us in chapter 4 and now even at this time as we move into chapter 6. But also as we've gone through this epistle, there uh, is not only these exhortations, but certain warnings given to us as we saw in chapter 2 that give the more earnest heed to the things that you have heard lest you drift away. Chapter 3, the warning about a hardness of heart that leads to the sin of unbelief. And then chapter 4, about not entering into his rest. And then we concluded last week in chapter 5 about having a dullness of hearing that leads to spiritual immaturity. And as we move into chapter 6, I think that we're going to read probably, as I've already said, the strongest and most sobering warning given to them that we have in the entire book of Hebrews, perhaps in the entire Bible, verses 4 through 6, that we're going to look at very carefully but before we cover that, remember that he was dealing with their spiritual immaturity as we ended chapter 5, uh, that they were dull of hearing. There wasn't anything wrong with their ears, but there was a problem with their hearts. And when anybody comes along and says to us, or if you think, well, the Bible is dull, the Bible is boring, it's because they have a dullness of heart. There's a heart problem because the Bible, I'll tell you this, is not boring and it is not dull, but it is living. It is powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit. And in chapter 6 now, the writer here of Hebrews is going to kind of wrap up this discussion that they should be taking in the meat of the word, but they continue taking in the milk of the word, and they really haven't grown spiritually. So let's begin to look at that in Hebrews chapter 6. We read in verse 1, Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment, and this we will do if God permits. It is God's desire, listen, for every single one of us that are here this morning, that we grow in Christ, that we mature in Christ, that we grow and mature in the Word of God. And that is what's being told to us as we open up the chapter here. Let us go on to perfection. It doesn't mean that we're going to try to achieve to be perfect on this side of eternity because it's not going to happen, is it? We're not going to reach perfection, have a perfect heart. But what it's telling us is that we are to move on to maturity. That's what that word perfection means. We are to mature. We are to grow. Uh, we are to be conforming to the image of Jesus Christ day by day. So go beyond the elementary teachings about Christ. Go on and move on to maturity. And it's interesting that the things that he lists here as being elementary principles. Number one, repentance from dead works. In other words, turn away from those dead works that will not save you. 
the writer is in a pause here. Keep in mind, as we're in chapter 6, he was developing in the previous chapter this thought that Jesus, that his priesthood is superior to the Levitical priesthood. He's a priest after the order of Melchizedek, which is a priest forever. His sacrifice was superior to the animal sacrifices, and he ministers in a superior tabernacle, a heavenly tabernacle. He will develop that when we get to chapter 7 and 8 and into chapter 9, moving into chapter 10. So very important for us to understand that. But now as he's in this pause, he, he stopped and he says, now I need to address this dullness of Harry, this spiritual immaturity. And he says, we're to, to move on. We're to be established in, in the, these elementary principles, repentance from dead works. Don't go back to those things that are not going to save you. Some of the other principles that are listed, faith towards, or towards God. It isn't faith towards a religious system. It's not faith towards a person. For us today, it's, it's not faith towards a church. It's not faith towards a pastor. It's not faith towards a doctrine. It's faith in Him personally, in the person of Jesus Christ, surrendering your life to Him, realizing that I need to turn to Jesus and be forgiven. He did the work on the cross to provide forgiveness of sin as he made atonement for sin for me he took my sins upon himself and he was put into a grave and he rose again and the tomb is empty and, and now i come and i receive him as my personal lord and savior it is faith in him and what he did for us and who he is the son of god and providing that forgiveness and salvation and right relationship with the father thirdly the doctrine of baptisms plural and, and you read the common and they say it's speaking here as he's making reference to the Jewish washing rituals. But the baptisms that are mentioned in the New Testament, we know that there's water. Baptism isn't there. Romans chapter 6 tells us that being baptized means that you're identifying with Christ. It's a public declaration that I am saved. We aren't baptized in order to get saved, but it declares to those who watch us go under the water as we identify with Christ. Our, uh, that is, that as we go under the water, it symbolizes that the old man, the old woman is buried. Our sins are buried. And coming out of the water, we're identifying in that newness of life as we're uh, having that resurrected life that we have, being risen with Christ coming out of the water. It's a powerful picture in water baptism. And, and so we identify with him through baptism, that proclamation that I am a Christian. And, and as we go through the waters, the water baptism, but also not only water baptism, but the baptism of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 1, the disciples were told to wait there in that upper room for the coming upon epi of the Holy Spirit to empower you. It's that Greek word dudomos, where we get our word dynamite to give you the power to be witnesses. Not that you're going to go out and witness, but to give you the power to live for him and also to be a witness with the words that you speak. We need the baptism of the Holy Spirit in our lives to empower us. I need that power to live for you, Lord. Fourthly, there's a laying on of hands he speaks about. 
We know from Acts chapter 12 that the leaders of the church at Antioch laid hands on Paul and Barnabas as they would be called and sent out on their first missionary journey. Timothy was told in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14, Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy and the laying on of the hands of the eldership. So the laying on of the hands in recognizing God's gift and calling on an individual. Paul would write in 1 Timothy chapter 5 that don't lay hands on anyone hastily. And then James speaks about the laying on of the hands by the elders for the one who is sick. Anoint them with oil. And then he lists number five, the resurrection of the dead, which would include the rapture of the church, the resurrection of the unrighteous dead in Revelation chapter 20, which is called the second resurrection. And then number six, eternal judgment. Heaven and hell. Hell is real. Eternal rewards for the believers as we stand before the Bema reward seat of Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Romans chapter 14. And you see, these are six areas, listen, that we should all have a good understanding of as Christians. And I know that if you're new to, to your faith, you're new to Bible study, that you're going to grow in these areas. But we are to do just that, to grow in understanding of these principles and to move on and to continue to grow in the Word of God. And as a teacher of God's Word, a teacher should be able to teach on these six principles to others. It would be kind of interesting that if we stood outside of, of churches, people coming out, if we were to ask them, what is your understanding of these six elementary principles that the writer of Hebrews says. What's your understanding? What the answers would be. And I think that perhaps that we would be surprised to, to see that a lot of people don't have a good understanding of these six elementary principles. So we're to have that. We're to move on, mature in the Word of God. And then we see that this warning is given to the Hebrew believers. Let's begin to look at that in verse 4. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, verse 6, if they fall away to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. So these three verses here of Hebrews chapter 6, I think have been the subject of more commentary and interpretation more than any portion of Scripture in, in the Bible. I've read many commentators, what they interpret this to mean, Bible teachers, their writings on it, and it's all over the spectrum. It is also, I believe, been ignored and avoided by many Bible teachers as well because they don't want to teach on this. It's too confusing. It's too controversial. Well, here's the thing about doing verse-by-verse -verse teaching. I can't skip this. I can't say, let's go from verse 3 over to verse 7 now. We have to cover this, and, and it's, there's a reason why it's here. And I think it's here for us to learn from and to, to have some clarity and understanding. And with the help of the Lord and with the honest look of what is being said, I pray that we can come away with some understanding of what is being told to us in these three verses. I may not satisfy everyone, but what we see here is that the writer of Hebrews, writing about the one who seems to know Christ, 
If they fall away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. Now, I do want to preface all of my remarks that I'm going to make uh, concerning these three verses that we read. We'll, we'll go on to verse 9. Uh, but there are many Christian teachers that they love the Lord. They're good teachers. And they have their ideas or their interpretations of exactly who it is that is being referred to and what it is meant that it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. And I appreciate them. I appreciate the body of Christ. And I know that truth isn't going to die with me. But there are some of those interpretations. I just don't agree with them. And they don't agree with me. So I understand that. It's like the rapture of the church. As I take the view of a pre-tribulation rapture, not everyone who teaches has that view of the rapture. And we can discuss it, we can even debate it, but we don't divide over it. So I'm going to do my best with the help of the Lord to give you what I believe is being said here in this difficult passage when it comes to the person who's being referred to. Now, there is the camp that many Christians who take the view of this one being spoken of really is not a Christian. They were enlightened, only tasted, but they haven't taken in. They haven't uh, taken in of the Lord. And one of the, the reasons that they hold to that view is because of the construction of the paragraph and in these verses that are here. For example, what we read in verse 1, let us go to perfection. Now, that's speaking about us, right? No doubt about it. Verse 3, and we will do if God permits. Still speaking about us as believers. But then we're going to see that the pronoun, it changes as we go into verse 4. For it is impossible for those who are once enlightened. And then verse 6, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance. And then we come back to verse 9. But beloved, we, the pronoun changes once again, of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation. So there are those, because of the construction of the paragraph here, that say we as believers are bailed out of this section. It's kind of like in 1 Thessalonians chapters 4 and 5, at the end of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, when Paul's writing about the rapture of the church, he's writing about us, the church, that one day will be raptured, that we're going to uh, be caught up, that we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together uh, with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Thus we shall always be with the Lord. Now that's speaking of the church, right? But then in chapter 5, as we go to chapter 5, concerning the day of the Lord, which includes the tribulation period, that Paul writes, For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, there's that change of the pronoun, that, that they shall not escape, and, but you, brethren, are not of the darkness. You're not of that time, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You're sons of the light. But for those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. For God did not appoint us. So the pronoun changes back and forth. And it seems to indicate to us that those of the day of the Lord are those who will dwell upon the face of the earth. That's a term that you see in Revelation chapter 3. Jesus used that term to those who are non-believers. So according to the pronouns here being used, 
there are those who say that it's not being spoken of in verses uh, back to Hebrews chapter 6 and verses 4 through 6. I don't know if I hold that view. It's an interesting kind of argument. But as we look at it, there is the ones that believe that this is indeed speaking of a Christian. That as we look at it carefully, and I think that's what we need to do, that this is a person that has tasted of the heavenly gift, the good word of God. They have become partakers of the Holy Spirit. Now think with me. Those two words, tasted and partakers, we have seen already be used in this epistle, haven't we? We have become partakers of the heavenly calling, haven't we? Heaven is promised to us. That's what we are told. And then we've become partakers of Christ. So it isn't maybe, perhaps, it could be that we have a heavenly calling or we're partakers of Christ. We have the hope of heaven, amen? We have that. We have Christ in our hearts. And so as you look at this, using that word, also with the word tasted, chapter 2, verse 9, that Jesus tasted death for everyone. It means that he did die for our sins. He didn't kind of die for our sins or maybe died for our sins. So it might be who is being described here is none other than a Christian. And I know, again, that there are those who would disagree with that thought. But you, I don't think you can make the argument in verses 4 and 5 that you can work it to where you can say that the text is speaking about the person who only professes to be a Christian but really isn't, that they're only dabbling in Christianity. Well, Jesus didn't dabble in going to the cross for us so that we have the hope of heaven. He tasted death for every single one of us so that we can be partakers of Christ and the heavenly calling that is before us. Also, it tells us here that if they fall away, verse 6, fall away from what? If they're not a Christian, you know, they fall away from what? Not being a Christian to not being a Christian. So there are those that say, and I tend to lean towards that, that it is speaking of, of a Christian that is here. Now, there's another interpretation that I've heard from this passage. I, I don't hold to this interpretation, but I'm going to throw it out there anyway. That the writer of Hebrews, what he is doing is presenting a hypothetical situation. That he's writing about a hypothetical situation that really can't happen. Here's the problem with that. If you're a lawyer, or if you're in politics, if you debate, you don't try to prove a point and drive home a point by introducing a hypothetical situation. That's an impossibility. You don't do that to make your point. All you're doing is undermining your position. So the writer of Hebrews has been talking about the high priest, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the heavenly calling, and I don't think that he's going to present a hypothetical situation here to make a point. It only confuses. So I don't hold to that view. Now there's another view, and there's the camp. There are those who will hold or give the view and the interpretation that this is a believer and a believer can lose their salvation, and then it is impossible if they have fallen away to renew them again to repentance. I have known people, I've talked to plenty, that have called me up and thought, you know, I fell away, I was in a season of being in the world, of backsliding. They had doubts in their hearts, and they heard these verses being talked about, and, and they think that I, I can't repent and come back to the Lord. 
Can I ask us all a question? Do you really believe that's the heart of Scripture? I'll tell you, it is not the heart of Scripture. The Lord didn't say to Peter, Peter, you deny me three times, so you're done, you're over with. It's not the heart of what we read not long ago in Luke's Gospel, the story of the prodigal son who returned to the father and the father ran out to meet him. Now, there's certain terms that we like to throw around in the church today, and one of those terms is being a Christian, those who profess in being a Christian, but they're really not. I'm a Christian because I belong to the church. I was baptized in the church. I, I'm a Christian because I grew up in a Christian home. We know that it is, once again, faith alone in Jesus Christ, what He has done for us, who He is, that we put our faith and trust in Him, that we can call ourselves a Christian. Now, Paul the Apostle, when he's writing to the church at Corinth, he would give them a warning. He said, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived, neither fornicators, adulterers, idolaters, homosexuals, sodomites, thieves, drunkards shall inherit the kingdom of God. He didn't say if you commit those sins. He says if you perpetually, continually live in those sins, that there's a problem. And Jesus said, how can you say you love me and not keep my commandments? It's see, it's what's in your heart is going to be worked out in your life. So we have that warning given. But then the other side of the spectrum is this, as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Heavy verse, isn't it? So it comes back to, it's about relationship. True relationship, faith in him. And that's why Paul would say to the Corinthians, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Examine your heart. Allow the Lord to examine your heart. So God is the one who really sees our hearts. He knows the heart. I don't see your heart. I can see your works, but not your heart. It, one of the things that, that you know, people will do is they'll say, Pastor Duff, do you really think that person's saved? I, I don't know. I'm not the judge. I can't see the heart. I can look at a person's work because I do know that even as James says, I'll show you my faith by my works. We're not saved by works, folks. But there's a living faith that is in us is going to be evident somehow in our lives. So there are those who profess to be a Christian, but really they don't understand salvation or what it means to be a Christian. Sometimes they're labeled make-believers. And then there's the backslider. There are those who will take this text and beat people up with them. And you've backslidden and you've lost your salvation. And there's no way to get it back. There is forgiveness. And restoration to the one who repents and turns away from their sin and comes to God. In the case of the prodigal son. And God is the one who knows who is just professing to be a Christian and is not. The one who's a backslider and will be back. So you got this whole debate, endless debate about losing your salvation. And once saved and always saved. I like what J. Vernon McGee says. I believe in the assurance of the believer and the non-assurance of the make-believer. The Bible talks a lot about the assurance and security of our salvation. Didn't we read in chapter 3, verse 1, Brethren, you're partakers of the heavenly calling. 
Peter would write powerful words for us in, as he opened up his first epistle, that we have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that does not fade away. Listen, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation. We know that Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, that Paul writes, being confident, this, being sure of this, of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in us will bring you to completion until the day of salvation. John chapter 10, that my sheep hear my voice, and they are in my Father's hand, and no one will pluck them out. Listen, I don't worry for one second that I'm not saved, that heaven is mine, that I can lose my salvation. So I don't believe that this is talking about the one who turns away from God, no hope of repenting and coming back to God. This doesn't apply to the one who wants to come back to Jesus in true repentance. And yet the passage has been taught in a way where there are those that are taught they've sinned away the day of grace. I see in the Bible, anytime someone truly wants to come back to the Lord and repent, the Lord receives them. He accepts that repentance. Isn't that why throughout the scripture that we see return to me over and over again? Even as we're seeing in the book of Isaiah, return to me, return to me. Another view that is held in it, I like this view that is held by many and widely accepted is that the writer is describing saved people. They have been enlightened. They've tasted and been partakers of the things of God. But the whole tenor of the text is speaking of the rewards which are the results of salvation. That the writer here of Hebrews is talking about the fruit of salvation, not the root of salvation. And again, we can't go into it fully, but we are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and then Romans chapter 14. We're not going to be judged for salvation, but we're going to be judged for what we have done for Christ, for rewards to be given to us. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, listen, read it, and it talks about our works being judged by fire that our works are like to gold and silver and precious metal or wood, hay, and stubble. And when we stand before the Bema reward seat of Jesus Christ, again, not to be judged for salvation, for our sins, Jesus took that judgment for you and for me. Are we established in that? But what we have done for Christ, Paul writes, in the body, whether good or bad, and the wood, hay, and stubble of our lives are going to burn up as we... We read 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and so the argument that those who hold to this view is that the rewards that are being discussed, verse 1, is the real key. He discusses repentance from dead works. Verse 6, that they fall away to renew them again to repentance, not salvation. And let's read verse 7 and 8 to keep it all in the context. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated, receives blessing from God, verse 8, but if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end it is to be burned. Same analogy is in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And then verse 9, but beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. So the writer hasn't been talking about salvation, but those things that accompany salvation. Speaking of the fruit of salvation and the rewards that will come if you believers that are coming out of Judaism don't go back to those dead works of repentance. 
the washings, the rituals, the animal sacrifices, all of that, those things are going to burn up, verse 8. If you continue by what you are being exhorted in, verse 7, we've already talked about that, first five chapters, you're going to receive blessing from God. I think that's a good understanding of the text. There can be a tendency of some Christians that with traditions and religiousness and rituals, they believe that they're pleasing God. I grew up in a church that was that way. And those things that really didn't have anything to do with pleasing God. And to know that Jesus said, abide in me. You abide in me, you're going to bear forth fruit. And that's how we produce fruit pleasing unto God. The next view, quickly. This view kind of falls along with what we've been saying. That this is speaking of those in an apostate state. Apostate literally means falling away. And the warning that if you decide to fall back into Judaism and stop trusting Christ as the only salvation that is found to renew them again to repentance, you see the one who's apostate, and it's very sobering to me that this isn't the only warning that's given, but we see it, Paul given to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, that the Spirit expressly says that in the latter days, some are going to depart from the faith given heeds to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. It's that word, falling away, apostate, uh, apostasize in, in, in the Greek language. And it's always linked to false teaching. We know that Jesus would speak about it in Matthew chapter 24. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, when the coming of the Antichrist comes in the tribulation period, that Paul speaks about a falling away of the church as a whole. And we know that there's going to be a false church that will be on the scene at that time. And that's why James says that we're to contend earnestly for the faith because of false teachers creeping in. Listen, I'm going to finish with this. I want to sum it up to where we can understand. I believe in the security of the Christian. It's all over the New Testament. And I know that... that particularly as we read Ephesians chapter 1, verse 14, that you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. That's a very strong word, sealed. You're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemptive uh, of the purchased possession. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, we see that Paul writes it again. He has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So I see that we're in the Father's hand. No one will pluck us out. I believe in the security of the believer. But I also want to say this, and this is where the warning's coming in. Listen, folks. Don't play games with your salvation. And I have no problem saying that. And there are those who perhaps grow up in the church and they've gone to Bible study, they've gone to youth group, they sang the songs, and then pretty soon they begin to adopt the worldly things and false doctrine and they fade away. Now, were they ever Christians in the first place? Did they ever come to that place of, 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 of faith in Jesus Christ? It's interesting that John, he writes a very... Interesting verse in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, for those of you who like to look into this. But he writes that they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. Don't play games with your salvation. 
And the thing I want to ask as we get ready to close here is where's your heart today? Really, where's your heart today? If you were to stand before the Lord, what are you going to say? If he asks you, why should I let you in? Oh, Lord, I went to church. I, I, um, I went to youth group. Are you putting your faith and trust in him? Are you really humbled before the Lord saying, Lord, you saved me and you died for my sins and I want to enter into that rest that the work is complete and I'm devoted to you and submitted to you and surrendered to you. But don't play games with your salvation. Where are you at today? And that's why Paul would say, examine your hearts. Examine your hearts to see if you're in the faith. And we want to give you the opportunity. You see, that's why I give these invitations after every service. I don't do it to be routine. I do it because I don't want anybody coming here thinking that they're saved because they came to a Bible study. You're saved because you realize you need to be forgiven. <clears throat> and you call upon the mercy and grace of God through Jesus Christ. And we want to give you the opportunity to do that right now. So, Father, we thank you. In this most difficult passage here, we can be secure, those of us who are, are Christians in our salvation, but, Lord, we're not to play games with our salvation. And maybe there are those, first of all, as we pray, that are here that maybe you've been coming for a while. Maybe you've been in church your whole life, but you've never made a commitment to Christ. Don't put your trust in, in those works of, of dead works of repentance that won't save you. It's not Calvary Chapel. It's not Pastor Jeff. It's not the faith of your spouse. It's not the faith of your parents. It's your faith in Jesus Christ. Have you surrendered to him? He loves you. He loves you so much. And that's why he went to the cross to die for you. And today is today to get right with the Lord to come and recognize your need for him, that you're a sinner in need of forgiveness, that he's truly Lord and Savior. He's alive, and you desire for him to sit upon the throne of your heart. Will you call out to him? And you can pray, Jesus, I come to you, and I put my faith in you and you alone, not in myself, not in a religious system, not in anything but you, Lord. Jesus, I ask that you would forgive me for I am a sinner. And I believe that you are alive. You rose from the grave and you are truly Lord and Savior. You proved it. And I ask that you would be my personal Lord and Savior. And I want to know you and I want to walk with you. And I ask that you sit upon the throne of my heart. I thank you for this new beginning. And I thank you for your promises for me. And I want to walk with you all the days of my life in Jesus' name. And listen, while we're being respectful, if you prayed that, will you put your hand up, put it back down at this service? It doesn't save you raising your hand, but maybe I don't see you. Maybe you're out in a coffee shop. Maybe you're listening on live stream. Maybe you're going to listen to this later on the radio. But let somebody know that you made a decision. Anybody here at all? Okay. Father, I do pray for all of us that, Lord, what is in our hearts really will be worked out in our lives. We can pretend, we can make believe, we can do all kinds of things, but, Lord, help us to examine our hearts.
we thank you for your incredible grace and mercy that we can come back and return. We can call upon you and you love us so much and that's your desire. But may we not play games with our salvation. So great a salvation that we have. We can struggle. We can falter in faith. But we have the assurance of salvation that we belong to you. So Lord, may we walk out of here encouraged. May we walk out of this place uplifted but yet challenged. Bless everyone here now as we go our way. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you please stand?